Oh my god, he did what? Yeah, he sucks. But he's so hot. This is Hot and Horrible. Hello, friends and lovers. This is Andre here today. Unfortunately, we do not have Emily, but we do have our very special podcast producer, Alex Foxton. Hey, everyone. And we have a very special guest for you today. You've been dying to hear from this amazing family therapist. So let me just do a quick introduction. We have Ilana Grinez. <laughs> and did I, did I say it right? You said it right. She is the most amazing person that we have ever talked to um, who is a therapist in California. Um, she has a list of accolades that literally go for miles. But um, we'll just say that um, a mental health page and a sexual graduate degree at UC Berkeley. And she also runs two amazing Instagram pages. Um, a mental health page, and a sexual health-focused page. That pretty much covers it. Yes, I'm so honored to be here. And Alex, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm I'm so happy to be here. Andre, I feel like getting to know you before this episode has been awesome and such a treat. And now we get to do this for more people. Thank you so much. I honestly think the same. I like enjoy talking to you so much that I was like, we could just talk for hours. Uh, how long have you been a therapist? I have been practicing face-to-face with people for seven years. I've been licensed for four. Um, Being a therapist requires you to to get 3,000 hours. So it's quite a long process to become a therapist, but I've been practicing for myself for four years. Dang, that's so much time. It's a lot of time. And most therapists work for 3,000 hours as unpaid interns. So it's quite a process to get face-to-face with a client in your private practice. Yeah, that's like a lot of work without getting paid. A lot, yeah. It was quite it was quite it was quite the road to get here and I'm really happy to get here and I feel like a lot of what I do is coach future therapists on how to get here and I think the one thing I always say is like it's a very long process so buckle up. But mm-hmm. once you get here it's so rewarding and I love what I do so yeah. That's amazing. So how did you get started? I went to UC Berkeley, as you mentioned, and when I was there, I was working in labs. So basically, there are so many labs that you can be part of, and we had patients come in, and Mm -hmm. a lot of it was data finding, etc. The part I most looked forward to was getting to know the patients and getting to know their stories. I just learned very quickly that the psychology portion was super important to me, but the lab slash statistics portion wasn't, and I took a class by Dacher Keltner. He's amazing. And I just knew I wanted to be a therapist. And I think I've always been that friend who people came to for advice. And I was like the sister that everyone went to for advice. And I, I knew I was born to be a therapist in a lot of ways. And then in college, I, I really loved talking about sex and I, I went to a school that was like very sex positive. So that was already an amazing give, but I just, I knew that I wanted to do something in the sexual health field. And this was like a beautiful marriage between therapy and sex. And yeah, I, I became a therapist. I went to school a few years later. I, I tried on a different, a few different professions and I kept getting back to, I'm going to be a therapist. I love that. Yeah. You, you have such a big story, you know? I love how you said while you were doing labs, you like cared more about the patient stories Mm -hmm. that speaks volumes about you, I think. Yeah. And I think that's why I didn't become a doctor because like you have like 15 minutes with your patients and 
I Mm -hmm. really like sitting and being like, let me pick apart your story and let me pick apart your brain and get to know you and why you're here. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I was just saying, it sounded like people just naturally open up to you and that you also just actually enjoy hearing people's stories and want to help people. And that's just extremely important. Thank you for what you do. I I tell people it's my smile. Makes people feel at ease. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Even from a distance, can you feel at ease? I do. You have all this warmth and joy. It's like an aura behind you, you know? Oh, it's not my ring lights. It's just like the energy. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the ring light. So even in your voice, hopefully, you know, when people look you up, they'll be like, wow, I hear in her voice. It's so warm. Good, good. Yeah. So that's how I became a therapist. And then, um, I guess how you found me is daily therapy dose. And so the pandemic hit and I wanted to create a resource for people because people were obviously struggling with their mental health. A daily mm-hmm. therapy dose went viral. We got a bunch of followers. I started a TikTok account. One of those videos went viral as well. And so that's kind of how I created my social media presence around my profession. And it's been amazing ever since. Yeah, you have tons of information on there. And it's always like interesting information that you probably haven't heard other places. It's just like so alluring, whatever you're doing. Thank you. So in the Emily session, we had a good deal of time to talk about our childhood and kind of how that manifested into our adult lives. She recalled a story about always helping and supporting her father in like his times of need. When moments like this occur in a young person's life, do you feel like it's common for them to uh, become like core memories and shape them as adults? Yeah, so I think that if we early on in our lives learn to be caregivers and to hold a lot of emotional space for the people who are supposed to be our caregivers, we think that it's our burden to carry for everyone. If early on in our lives, our caregivers expect us to hold space for them, we frequently then take on that role and become caregivers to everyone else in our lives. And you use the word core memory, but I think it's it's almost like a trauma that we store and that we learn and adapt with and from. So we then either hold a tremendous amount of space for everyone else in our lives, or we continue to adapt and expect everyone to use us as their therapist or their emotional receptacle. And it only is in reflecting upon that, that we can like set some healthy boundaries and say like, Hey dad, like, sorry, but I can't take on your emotional baggage today. And then translate that to everyone else in our lives. Yeah. When we as adults have taken that on, what is one thing we can do to kind of take that trauma and recognize it? I think naming it. So I want to be very careful with my words. Um, I was taught at a very early age to be a caregiver and it's not my job to be a caregiver to everyone else. And then also saying like everyone owns their own emotions. So asking yourself and reflecting and saying, is this mine to carry or is somebody Mm. else giving this to me or gifting this to me and it's not mine to have. So being really cognizant of like what's mine versus theirs and taking stock of like, do I need to be worrying about this or is this somebody else's anxiety? Yeah. My answer is like really taking time to reflect on what we're feeling and naming it. So I'm not a caregiver. I don't have to hold on to everyone else's feelings. I love that. That completely resonates. And thank you for answering that. Perfect. In uh, my session, we talked about how I was adopted 
and how my parents got divorced and I moved to the States with my mom and my brother. Mm -hmm. And we kind of got into the cycle of abandonment. Mm. And so talking about that, I was like, you know, I'll do anything for people, even if they've hurt me. And I was like, I'm kind of like the air bud equivalent of like a person. I was mm -hmm. wondering, other than booking an appointment to see you, you know, the greatest therapist ever, <laughs> what advice do you have for people to trust mm -hmm. who have those abandonment issues to trust again? Yeah. So I think that this is a complex answer. Um, but I think the first thing that we can say is if trust is difficult for you, then you have to create hoops, so to speak, for other people to jump through. And what I mean by that is it's multifaceted, right? Like you don't just trust somebody overnight. And if you already know that you have trust issues and you label them as abandonment issues, but I also heard a little of like mistrust in there, then like mm -hmm. people can jump through hoops to earn your trust. Right. So like maybe they have to follow up on a phone call and email you at a right time or show up for events that are important to you or come on your podcast. Um, but <laughs> they have to earn your trust in different ways and slowly, but surely you can let go of some of these trust issues that you have. So over time you can recognize like this person truly shows up for me and they showed up for me in many different ways. You can ground yourself in the facts, which is they showed up here and they showed up there and they showed up there. Then perhaps I can let my guard down. This person won't leave me because I can trust that they continuously and consistently show up for me. Mm -hmm. Would you em employ that strategy in your own life? Of course. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Andre, I feel like you knowingly or unknowingly do that already. Would you agree with that? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I think so. And completely, I used to be more on the perspective of you have my trust until you do something, but maturing, I'm like, you have to earn it. Mm -hmm. You absolutely have to, especially the closer you get or the more mental, emotional energy I put into you. You have to be more careful. My favorite line, and I say this often to so many clients, which is when someone shows you who they are, you have to believe them. Right. And so if someone is showing you who they are over and over again, and it's a positive thing, then you have to believe that that's who they are consistently. And mm -hmm. if someone shows you who they are and it's pretty shitty, then you have to believe that that is who they are mm -hmm. consistently as well. That is one of my best friend's favorite line that she has been telling me for years. Oh, good. I'm <laughs> glad I can, I can resonate that one for you and, and absolutely say it that's again, perfect. but it's, it's quite literally like it changes the way we view people. And I think that if we can consistently see how someone shows up for us, th there's no better fact than that. It's in their behavior. Thank you so much for answering those questions. Thank you for being so vulnerable and having your therapy session for the world to hear. Of course. So to move on, what is your advice on marriage, relationships, and friendships? Lately, what I'm seeing a lot of in my couples is this notion that like their partner can read their mind. Mm. We've been dating for three years. You should know what I like on Saturdays. You should know what I want to do. And I think that that is such a common misconception, which is like time changes what our partners know about us. Like, And so I'm going to just say this, which is communication, as much as we hear this, communication is key, right? Saying exactly what we want, how we want it, what we need more of, what hurts our feelings. 
is so important in a relationship and no partner is a mind reader. I think that that is something that I see constantly, which is why didn't you just tell your husband that? Or why didn't you tell your wife that? They're like, because they should know. But no, nobody is a mind reader. And the more clear you are with your desires and the things that bother you, the happier and healthier your relationship. And that is also true of friendships, which is to say that like communicating really clearly with your friends will change your friendships. Are you saying that the expectation of being a mind reader isn't realistic? Like, I don't think any of us are psychic or like reliably psychic. And so I think that if you want an answer to something, send the text. If you want to know where somebody stands on a fight, ask them. Like it may be uncomfortable and sticky in that situation, but the faster you rip off that band-aid, the faster you can move through anxiety. And another like Ilana saying is no sets people free. So a lot of us are like really scared of saying the word no, but saying no is a boundary and that is a form of communication, right? And so it's like communicate to a fault. Um, I can give examples of how no sets you free, but I think for, for the purpose of like nobody can read minds, even saying the word no is enough. I love that. Because even in our second episode, which we had um, anecdotal red flags, mm. you know, saying no is like a good thing. Yes, it's a great thing. So um, I just have to ask, would you be on this podcast ever again? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> of course. I was ready to hear a no, you know, I, just yeah. in case. No, I mean, I always set my boundaries, right? But I, I love talking about these things. Amazing. Do you have anything about setting expectations for the people we, we love? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I know you said like personal anecdotes and I, I guess like we're being vulnerable today. Um, yeah. So I guess my anecdote on like setting expectations and communicating is my wife is actually a therapist. So like we both are therapists and sometimes that gets complicated because we like to talk about things to like an excessive amount. And mm -hmm. Sometimes we forget these basic skills and necessities of like, you know, I'm, I'm not a mind reader and neither is she. Um, more like I sometimes struggle with this and I will admit it, right? We're human. And so my wife's love language is quality time. And I don't think she's going to care that I'm sharing this. My wife's love language is quality time and I am a micro schedule, like micro scheduler. I schedule everything mm -hmm. by like 15 minute blocks. And, I do that too. Oh, good. I'm not alone. And for my wife, that's like so foreign. She just doesn't understand it. And so she always felt like I wasn't making her a priority. And then at some point I was like, why don't you just tell me to schedule you into my schedule and then I'll make you a priority. And she's like, that yeah. doesn't sound natural. And I said, look, I can't read your mind. If you want more of my time, I need you to put on my calendar. So we had to compromise. And now she lives on my calendar and she has access to my calendar. So when she needs me, she just pops herself in. But for me, it was like, I couldn't read her mind to know that she needed more of my time. And she couldn't read my mind to know that to make time for her, I just needed it on my calendar. So we sat down in couples therapy and we came up with a solution and it was like, it's changed our marriage, which is to say that like, it should have been so simple, but she mm -hmm. needed to communicate her needs to me and I needed to communicate my needs to her and then problem solved. I can totally resonate with that because I know when I've been in relationships before, it's like 
when you want to schedule something with them. I'm like, oh, yeah, what time do you want to, like, you know, see a movie? It's like, I don't know. We'll just find, like, a movie time tonight. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh, in my head, I'm like, I have to know what time because I have a block in, like, in my head and in my calendar of, like, this is time to watch a movie. You know, this is time to eat dinner. I even have, like, no eating for Andre because I even do, like, intermittent fasting. Oh. And so I know exactly when to stop eating. Oh, wow. Andre's calendar is full. Oh, yeah. I always say, Andre, do you have time for this today? Please pull up your calendar. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I have friends who know. Alex, do, do you also micro-schedule? No, but I know how to because I had to when I was a teacher, and mm-hmm. so I didn't understand it before. But then I realized when I was teaching, if I did not micro-schedule, it wasn't going to be done, mm-hmm. and I was going to be very stressed. Yeah. And so now I understand both perspectives. I like that. I mean, and at the end of the day, like, I know – the big picture here is like we communicated with each other in a really Mm -hmm. non-defensive manner. And I think that that's something that people forget often, which is you and your partner or you and your friend, you play for the same team. And sometimes when we're trying to communicate our wants and needs, we get so passionate about it. We become defensive. And if we can communicate with our partners in a really like non-defensive approachable way, usually we can get to the solution a lot faster. Yeah. I How do you that. keep that in perspective? Because I I do that often. Get to be heated, honest. get passionate, you get passionate. Oh. <laughs> no. Um <laughs> no, I I take it as like, oh, they they meant to hurt me. Mm. But I I know that logically, I understand that no, they probably just forgot or they were busy. Yeah. But I I come into things thinking, well, why would they do me wrong like that? And I and I know that that's not what it is. Are you speaking about your partner or a friend? Both. I'll okay. do it for I mean, all relationships. I think for my partner, it's really easy for me to like sit down, take a deep breath, recognize that I'm boiling and say like, we're on the same team. How does this help us? Like, how does me being super passionate about this help the situation or help our partnership? And if I can't calm myself down and I'm still seeing red, I usually ask for like a pause. I ask for a break. Right? Because being passionate never helps. So in the moment, I guess my strategy for you is like asking yourself, checking in with yourself. How does this help? Right? We're on the same team. We play for the same team. Are we, are we going to reach our goals and, and dreams by fighting over this? And then the other thing is just like asking for a break, right? Like it sounds like you're seeing red, which, you know, there's so many things behind that. And it's like, if I can take a step back and get a perspective on it, usually I'll come back to the situation and be like, oh, that wasn't really that big of a deal. Like I was just heated because my adrenaline was coursing through my blood. That definitely answers that. Thank you. I know know that's so simplified, but like it really does help. And sometimes it's just about like taking a step and writing down on a piece of paper. So you have to read it back to yourself. We play on the same team. I like that. Mm -hmm. So I have a question. You mentioned your wife is also a therapist. If I was in your shoes, I would be like, oh, am I like overanalyzing what she's saying? Is she (laughs) overanalyzing what I'm saying? And then you also mentioned you two were in couples therapy for Mm -hmm, a bit. mm -hmm. Like then that's like a triangle of analyzing everybody. (laughs) No, it's like that Spider-Man meme, you know, when everyone's like pointing at like, who's who, you know, Mm -hmm. what's the dynamic like? Such a great question. Um, So we have this rule that we take our therapist hat off when we're fighting, talking to one another, 
being in this home, right? Because it gets a little tricky when you start to like analyze one another and then you're like really watching out for what the other person's saying and you're not really staying in the moment with your partner. So sometimes if we're saying something, it's always like, take your therapist hat off. Mm-hmm. Um, or I need, I need to consult, put your therapist hat on, right? Or this person really upset me and it's like, okay, can we look at that with our therapist hat on? So really delineating what is like love and, and companionship and the other, what is work? Um, and then when we step into our couples therapy sessions, we are just people. Um, I think that our emotions rule and we, again, leave our therapist hat at the door. But I think I would hope that's similar for any other profession. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I just find it so interesting because... You know, you're talking to people all day. All day. And you're helping people, so. Yeah. The good thing is that we both have very different specialties, and so we don't bring home the same stories. Yeah. What are some common mistakes or miscommunications you see, and how do you avoid them? I know we talked about people aren't mind readers. That's a big one. Mm -hmm. So just, like, not communicating our needs, that's a huge mistake, so to speak, or miscommunication. And then I think a lot of what I'm hearing lately is I have a lot of singletons. So people who are in the dating world and Mm -hmm. they are, I think similar to what you had mentioned earlier, like they're making plans with these people that they're meeting and there's like no confirmation of like plans, which is, I think a miscommunication, which is like, let's decide on a plan and stick to it. And I guess it's not just for the dating world, but people really need confirmation of things in my opinion. Or what I found. So it's like, hey, we're going to meet on this podcast. Let's meet at 6 p.m. Great. I'll see you there. Versus like, let's just meet sometime tonight. Like, yeah, people don't really do very well in that gray area. So I think, I mean, I can put that onto so many different things, but confirming. So the other person knows. That definitely makes sense. I've heard some funny stories from friends where this guy, he was like, oh, do you want to get dinner Friday night? Mm-hmm. And she was like, yeah, we'd love to, you know. And then so Friday night happens and she's like, he hasn't texted me. So I don't think we're going to get dinner tonight. Mm. And she was super excited. And then she gets a text right at seven saying, hey, I'm at the restaurant. Where are you? And she's like, "What?" I like never got confirmation that we were like doing this tonight. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, so sorry, but like, I didn't know. Right. You know, and so then like- that date just didn't happen yeah Yeah, and he's like well i said dinner on on friday night (laughs) it's wild it is wild and i think that like i mean i think that your audience and probably my friend group are like similar in age so a lot of people are dating out there and i feel like this is a very common miscommunication which is state your day state your time where are we meeting and confirm right and then that way everyone Mm -hmm. feels validated everyone feels seen you can change plans but at least there's like one plan that everyone can stick to and buy into. What do you think exactly. about that one, Alex? You you feel like, I feel like you're like looking looking. No, at I me. completely agree for several different reasons. But my question is, why do you think that that's a trend right now? Like that's kind of seems odd. Like why leave that? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of this is COVID, right? I think that like we forgot so many of our socialization skills. <laughs> Um, like we didn't have to make plans. We didn't have to stick to them. And now people are going back out there and there's this like undertone of anxiety of like making a plan and perhaps not being able to follow through with it. 
And I think that confirming it alleviates that for some people. Mm. Um, and also maybe heightens that for some people. So it's like a double-edged sword. Um, I'm actually very curious as well, but that would be my theory, which is like, we didn't have to go out for two years and now people are going out and they've forgotten maybe what it takes to have a really successful night or how to like prep for a successful night, which I know is counterintuitive, but like just confirming is like positive step in the right direction. I think I agree with what you're saying. That makes sense. I think my last and final miscommunication is people also expect others to know how they want to be supported. I know we talked about the mind reading. Supporting another person, I think is one of the most difficult things that we can be tasked to do. And I think a lot of people just expect others to know how to support them. I don't know if it's a miscommunication or mistake, but I think about being very clear with like how I want to be supported. And very frequently, if somebody texts me and says X, Y, Z, and I'm like, oh my goodness, the first thing I will say is how can I support you? Because I think everyone has a different way of feeling supported, feeling loved, feeling appreciated. And I want that person to be able to tell me what they need. Yeah. Have you heard that backpack analogy? It's like, how heavy is your backpack today? Mm. And it's like, you know, that anxiety or whatever you're carrying that day, it Mm -hmm. might be a different weight. But Mm -hmm. then it's like, how can I help you? Mm. So it's like, either I can carry your full backpack or you can unload some of it onto me. We can redistribute the weight. And that way you can communicate effectively, I feel like. Okay, but then everyone needs to know about your backpack. Exactly. You know. Can we put that like (laughs) theme song? Backpack, backpack. Yeah, is that Dora the Explorer? I love that. Yes. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Yes. I I love that. I think the easiest way to show someone that you care is by literally asking them how you can support them. Mm -hmm. Cuts out a lot of mistakes that we make in communication. For sure. Last week, we um, had an episode called Hot and Queer. And we had two friends who both identify as non-binary and they're a couple. And um, our question is, so are queer relationships different than heteronormative relationships? I love that question. I think that queer relationships are getting more mainstream. They're definitely far from being everywhere and everything, and people aren't super comfortable with them. I think I'm really fortunate to live in Los Angeles where I never worry about my queer relationship. But I will say, I just recently posted about my relationship on my Instagram page and I lost 700 followers. No way. So as much as we want to say like, oh, people are becoming more accepting, I think there is a real need to normalize queer relationships. So there's such a double standard, right? Like heterosexual relationships are talked about all the time. They're still in mainstream media. And I think queer relationships are getting there, but I think we need to normalize that queer relationships are the same we still fight we still have issues we still struggle with communication and at the end of the day it's just two people who love each other who may have the same gender and gender identity and that's about it so it's almost like normalizing that two people could look the same and still love each other so have the same genitalia versus Mm -hmm. like you know a man and a woman which is what we've been taught that we need to be in love with so kind of changing the dialogue and normalizing the fact that like people can just love other people and that in that love there is still arguments to be had and difficulties and challenges and a whole lot of love and positivity that can be gained as well i love that we talked about how communication in queer relationships seems to be so much better than 
you know, heteronormative relationships, would you agree Mm -hmm. that it's easier to communicate with your partner? I actually wouldn't agree. I think communication requires work regardless of what kind of a relationship you're in. There are so many different relationships that also encompass queer relationships like poly relationships etc and i think every single one of them requires its own special level of communication just because somebody is the same gender as i am does not mean that they know how to communicate just the way i do um but i think that's a really common misconception um maybe because we're socialized the same way that we should be able to communicate more similarly but For example, myself, I grew up in California. I was raised by immigrants. My partner grew up in Peru, right? Like totally different society, speaking a totally different language. And we have completely different communication styles. Yes, we both identify as female, but I wouldn't say our communication patterns are easier. (laughs) I say we work really hard to communicate with one another. And and I hope that if there are other queer people who listen to this podcast, they recognize that Maybe if they are in a same gender relationship, same sex relationship, that they're not worried like, oh, communication should be so much easier because we're both women or we're both men. Mm, no, I think that communication takes a lot of work and maybe it is a little easier, but at the end of the day, we're all just people with very different lives trying to make it work together. You're completely right. <laughs> I hope I, I have a little insight into this. Yeah, no, it sounds great. JJ mentioned something that's actually pretty funny. They said something about uh, U-Hauling. Have you heard that? Oh, yeah. What do you think about U-Hauling? <laughs> I mean, I think that it's... I don't know if there's any fact in the U-Haul experience, mm-hmm. but I think that people who identify as women... Um, more frequently feel closer to people faster and so therefore they speed up the process but I just had a couple yesterday it was our first session and they are heterosexual and they told me that they moved in with each other after four months wow so I think the U-Haul experience is universal (laughs) amongst people who feel very close very fast and perhaps don't recognize like the beauty in taking things a little slower um but yes, I've definitely heard, I don't know if it's a euphemism or an adage, but yeah. that lesbians do U-Haul. But I would also argue that gays also U-Haul. Okay, wow. We're going to we're gonna have to have like a poll. Yes. I, I just think we're that... We're going to find out. I think that like people more so associate that with women, um, but eh, I think that's a universal experience. I love that. So our podcast is called Hot and Horrible, and we were just wondering, do you have any personal hot and horrible stories you'd like to share with us today? (laughs) So I'm really glad that you asked me to share a hot and horrible story. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So I'm I'm not going to give away too many specifics, but I just will say that earlier in my life, um, I definitely had sex with someone really early on in the relationship. And I so immediately started regretting it because I think they were so hot that I was so infatuated with what they looked like and presented that I just like wanted to get to know them physically. Mm -hmm. And then I got to know them intellectually and emotionally and they were horrible and like just had no motivation, no drive. And then they gaslit me all the time. And so... (laughs) 
I think it's a really common thing, but I think that if I had just looked past their hotness and beauty and handsomeness, I would have just been like, no, this is not the right match for me. But it was just like so overwhelmingly hot <laughs> that I couldn't see, I couldn't see the signs or the red flags. Um, yeah, but I think that with a little more experience, I've learned that like not all hot people are horrible and not all hot people are great people. It's about really taking your time to like see what a person is underneath this facade that we all put on. For sure. It's about what's inside, not what's on the outside, right? <laughs> I mean, I, th I think there's like a part of this, which is like the outside really attracts you right away. And then you have to give it some time to see if their inside matches their outside. Yeah. Yeah. And in that moment, I definitely didn't do that. So um, that was my really hot and really horrible story. And I was thinking about it and I was like, there's a lot of hot and horrible stories in my past. But this one, I, I just remember being like, why did I not take my time? And then it was just because they were so hot. <laughs> <laughs> we all have been there. So we totally get yes. where you're coming from. Yes. Thank you for the the validation. Of course. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so, so much for being on our podcast. This has been like a highly mm -hmm. anticipated event. So we have some questions from listeners. What does a healthy partnership slash relationship look like? And um, what does it feel like? And what does it sound like? These are loaded questions. I, I, feel, like, I feel like everyone has their own idea of healthy happy, healthy, feeling, sounding, looking like. So I'm just going to preface with that, okay. right? Which is my idea of happy and healthy is different than Alex's and probably yours, but I think we can all overlap a little bit. So a relationship is a test of your central nervous system. I say this all the time and I guess I'll expand on it, which is if you are with somebody who makes you feel calm and good and it just feels natural then that's probably a really healthy person for you, right? But if your central nervous system is anxious and it's constantly running to fix things and you can't seem to find your footing, yeah, I would ask yourself if that's the right relationship for you. So I hope that answers how it's supposed to feel. It's supposed to feel warm and fuzzy and calm. And of course, there's going to be conflict. You are two people. And... If it's constant and your central nervous system is always overreacting, perhaps you need to examine that relationship. For sure. From what you've said, it kind of sounds like you're in a healthy partnership relationship. <laughs> <laughs> the communication is I like off the charts. Yeah, I would hope so. But again, like we also have moments of not being super healthy and being a little toxic. Um, I actually named my toxic character. Mm -hmm. So when I'm being toxic, I... I know that Patty is coming out. <laughs> uh-huh. And I I am told, like, P Patty, you better get yourself in check. Um, so I speak to that version of myself. Um, and that helps a lot to be like, oh, like, maybe Ooh. this is the part of me that I should work on a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. We can talk about that in our next episode, <laughs> like, na naming our toxicity. I like that. Um, but we are definitely not perfect. And I think that... I think that looking at couples, I think this is actually really great. Looking at couples on Instagram, like you can't gauge their health. Yeah. Like that's a farce. So maybe it's like coming up with your own understanding of what a healthy couple looks like. For sure. And I think nobody really knows like a relationship other than the two people. Yeah. 
and what may feel and look really healthy to me may not feel and look really healthy to my sister. Yeah. To each their own. Alex, do you want to do the next couple questions? What are your thoughts about casual sex and hookup culture as a mental health professional? I like it. So I'm going to put my therapist hat on. Okay. So we, we live in like the post Tinder world right now, I think. Like I feel like Tinder had its like spike and now we are like back to kind of like recognizing the hookup culture. So casual sex and hookup culture is what it is, right? Like it is about you as a person. So what are your expectations in a relationship, in a situationship, et cetera. So I think that casual sex is great for some people and casual sex is awful for others. And biologically, I think some of us are predisposed to feel more emotionally connected after having sex with another individual. And those people, in my opinion, shouldn't be having casual sex, right? If you know exactly what you're going into in terms of the hookup culture and um, casual sex, then great. Like more power to you. If you're a person who's predisposed to being like, oh my God, we had sex and I love them and I'm thinking about my future with them and can't wait to have babies, I would say perhaps you should slow down a little bit on the hookup culture because that could cause a lot more damage than good. Are you hooking up with people because you're acting out? So like, are you feeling insecure or bad about yourself or your body image, etc.? Then I would really examine whether hooking up with other people is helping you or hurting you in the long run. Right? Because then you may be internalizing stuff about yourself that may not help you. For sure. So it's definitely about setting expectations and then knowing yourself. Yeah, and I think some people love casual sex. And I, I love that for them. I think that's so empowering. But I think you need to know, like, am I a person who can handle this? And do I get jealous? Is it going to affect my self-esteem? Um, and then I also think, like, you have to take inventory of, like, is my safety at risk? Do I know how to communicate what I need? Is this a person that I feel like will respect my boundaries, right? Like those are things you also have to think about with casual sex. So yeah, I guess it's it's taking the time to reflect before just jumping into it. And it's not for everyone. I think one of the most important things is to stay safe, right? A hundred percent. No matter what. A hundred percent. Ilana. Let's just say, like, let's just, you know, hand it to you you because this has been an awesome time talking to you. I feel like time just, like, ran by. feels like, you know, 15 minutes. I lost track of time, to be honest. I'm like, we're going all night? (laughs) We love you already. Oh, thank you. Can you tell us about your podcast? Because you're coming out with a podcast soon. I am. Well, I mean, it's in the works. It's been in the works for a while. Um, Just, like, so many things have been happening and... My priority is always my clients, so my private practice is my priority, but Daily Therapy Dose is my baby, and I love listening to podcasts. It's like my favorite thing to do, and it's not like it is my favorite thing to do, and I I think I could lend a different space out there in the podcast world, so the Daily Therapy Dose podcast is in the works. Daily Therapy Dose podcast is going to be all about mental health and wellness. We're going to have guests. It's going to be a lot of my expertise, probably a lot about what I'm seeing in my client sessions, totally anonymous, and sharing that with the listeners and hopefully like putting my spin on it, which is that mental health and wellness are so tied to sexual wellness. So like sprinkling that in a lot and making sure that my voice is heard and the voices that I can amplify come on and speak to their expertise. 
for sure. And you have so much knowledge. Like, you'll have a million episodes of stuff to talk about, I'm sure. I hope so. Yeah, so Daily Therapy Dose podcast coming soon. Right now, we just rebranded Daily Therapy Dose. I'm trying to show my face more on camera. That's like my goal of 23. Cool. Um, you can find me on Daily Therapy Dose on Instagram and TikTok. Daily Dose of Sexuality on Instagram. That's about it. Um, my website, my personal website is ilanagrinus.com. Um, I highly suggest you subscribe for our newsletters. I send out a bunch of good information. You can find that on dailytherapydose.com. I'll be doing that and myself. Me too. Yay. And then other than that, like I really do live in our DMs. So please DM me on Daily Therapy Dose. I am here for everything. Like really, I love connecting with people. Amazing. I'm so glad people have a direct contact to you because I think that's so important. Oh, good. I'm going to be listening to your podcast. I'm going to be your number one podcast listener. I love podcasts. In all, all seriousness, DM me, reach out to me. Let me know that you heard me on Hot and Horrible, and I'd love to connect. Yeah. Well, you can find me on Andre Country Life or Andre Country on all social media. And Alex? At Hot and Horrible Pod. Fantastic. Well, goodbye, friends and lovers. Thank you for another amazing week. 